0: You know, One of the early missionary trips, and this is exciting, we're talking about missionary trips that we can take, and we're looking forward to other opportunities to do that. One of the early trips in American history was actually by Moravian missionaries who went to what is the uh, Midwest today, and it was a very successful trip. They had about 300 of the Native Americans who came to Christ, but the problem was is that the Native Americans that didn't come to know Christ became very upset with them, and they began to torment them and oppress them and keep them from having good land and good food to eat and they became violent towards them and they threatened the missionaries so much so that the missionaries to protect the the actual the people that were there actually had to leave and things kind of settled in but it was a little rough but then guess what happened some white people came in who didn't know the lord and they met these trusting indians and they slaughtered most of them is that weird isn't that a great story to start off with here? <laughs> and I read this recently in this book, and I'm like, I can't believe this is true. You know, I mean, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? It really messes with your mind. I read this book. It's Pat Jawson's fault. I don't see him here today, so I thought, no, you're back there. Pat told me about this book called *The Frontiersman*. Brenda won't read it because it's too violent. So, and most of you won't. It's a long book, but it's a fascinating book, *The Frontiersman*, and it's almost like a microcosm of the world today. It's the it's how they settled the Northwest Territory. And there's all this fighting going on back and forth, and even the guys that are trying to be good guys end up, it seems to be doing the wrong things. I mean, it changes your whole views on how the West was won, because when I was a boy, if you wore a white cowboy hat, you were a good guy, and everybody else, especially the Indians, were the bad guys. But then you go to school, and they tell you, no, the white guys are the bad guys because they stole the Indians' land. And then you read a book like this, and you know what you figure out? We're all bad guys. It's amazing. You know, it, it, we really are. It's like Benjamin Watson, the NFL football player. Did you hear what he said when they had the race riots a few years ago? He said, it's not about skin, people. It's about sin. And it's even beyond that. You know, our, all the different ideologies and belief systems we have, and then we just all kind of span out, and we're all fighting against each other. And so you see these, the white people were more of the aggressors. They had the numbers. They had the money. They had the unity, and they brought disease with them as a weapon. But the Indians, they were disunified. They were fighting against each other, and they were barbaric. Some of the things they did did were unmentionable. And they're all fighting against each other. And then you find a really nice, reasonable, honest Indian chief. And then you find a real nice, honest, reasonable army general. And they'd sit down, and they'd work out a treaty and make their compromises, and everything seemed like it would work out. And then somebody else would come in and blow it. And the story is a lot about the six foot five, 250 pound frontiersman, a great giant of a man by the name of Simon Kenton, and another guy who was the great Indian chieftain of the time, the great Shawnee chief, Tecumseh. And they're both trying to do the right thing and they keep doing the wrong things. They're trying to do what's right, but everything's so messed up that life gets confusing. Isn't that kind of what the world is like? You see, those that know Christ seem to be a small number, and we see people coming to know the Lord and, and, and going to heaven, but then so much conflict as everybody's fighting for what they want. And we learned this last week, last couple of weeks, we've talked about this, this is the way of the world. Everybody take care of yourself. We raise, we've raised our kids this last generation on self-esteem, and that in and of itself is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing, but if you get to the point where you always feel like you're the chosen one, Guess what happens when you have to sit down in a room and make decisions? Everybody's separated out, right? If everybody's taking care of themselves, how does society survive? But that's the way of the world. That's politics as usual. And that was a problem that they had 2,000 years ago. James had that problem in the book that we've been studying, and we've been talking about faith in action. And boy, it's hard to put faith in action when you get into a room and everybody's trying to take care of themselves. So James... He says when you have a conflict, he has a recommendation for us. If you want to have victory, if you want to see things work out the way you want them to, this is what you need to do. It's a little bit counterintuitive. You need to surrender. You need to surrender for victory. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's what he says you have to do. Well, what do you need to surrender to? Ultimately, you need to surrender to the grace of God. And the grace of God is really the heart behind faith and action. And so we're going to read about that today in chapter 4 of James. I'm going to read through that whole thing. And after I do so, we'll go back and we'll talk about it some. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you might spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. "...submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today and tomorrow we're going to go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right, the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So we need to surrender to God's grace. And, and the first paragraph, he talks about what we need to do is go to God first. He talks about the fighting they're having. And it gets back to what we've talked to the last couple of weeks. Everybody's fighting for their own right. And they're battling it out with each other. And it's interesting because uh, there's a couple things that are key. One is the, de- the word desires. The word desires is the word that we get hedonism from. And that's the desire to, to just have pleasure at all costs. Even if it costs somebody else. We just want to... You know, make have it easy and have our own way. And so, what do you do about this? Well, you go ahead and you kill people, right? That's it. They, they were killing people. Does that bother you? It says you kill people, you murder people. Were they actually killing each other? I mean, it was a barbaric society. And I certainly have been in church meetings where, when you look at somebody's eyes, you think, well, you know, if it was they had a gun in hand, you know, um, people can get pretty upset. But I don't think that's really what they're talking about here because I think about Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, that he says, what happens when somebody's angry with their brother? What is that like? It's like murdering them in their heart. And I think what he's doing is metaphorically pointing out, you have murderous hearts. You're so angry at each other. It's like you're you're shooting at each other. It's like you're beating each other up. Why are you being so mean to each other? You, You shouldn't do this. So then what should we do is a natural question. And he says, go to God. He says, you don't get what you want because you don't ask. Well, we pray every once Well, while, we ask. He says, but you don't ask in the right way. You don't ask with the right motives. He says, when you ask, it's, it's only for yourself and for what you want. And remember, one of the themes that we've seen repeatedly, and we saw this at the end of our Luke series with Jesus at Gethsemane, is that Jesus says that I pray for your will, not my will be done. And that's the real theme here is that we need to pray for God's will. When we go to God, we need to pray as He would want us to pray, not as what we want. God will not honor a selfish prayer. Did you know that? That's a good thing. He's not going to honor prayer for you if you're in sin and if you're asking things only for yourself to gratify yourself, to go against what He wants and to perhaps even harm others. He's not going to honor that prayer. I like what Soren Kierkegaard says. He has a, a statement on prayer that's pretty cool. He says, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Ever thought about that? When we pray, we tend to think, I've got to help God out here and show him what he needs to do. God already knows what he's going to do. He already knows what he's all about. It isn't a matter of trying to persuade God to join in with you. It's a matter of joining in with him, trying to determine where he's at, saying, I surrender to whatever your will is, and being able to determine that will and joining with him in it. And that's when we start praying the way God wants us to, when our minds become united with his mind, our heart is united with his, and that's when it starts happening. But in order for that to happen, we've got to humble ourselves. And so that's what he says next. He says, humble yourselves. Um, Humble ourselves before God, he says, is what you need to do if you want to experience um, God's grace. And he starts off with some pretty harsh kind of Old Testament language. You know, he talks about adultery and not being faithful to people and friendship. So here's how it goes, is betrayal. Not a good thing. Even if you like betrayal, you generally don't like it when somebody betrays you, right? No one likes to be betrayed. So Friendship is a horrible thing. To have a good friend, your best friend, betray you. So the closer the friendship, the more meaningful the relationship, the worse the betrayal, right? So ideally, the closest relationship that people have on earth is a marriage, a good marriage between a husband and wife. And the greatest betrayal would be to betray that marriage. And so God metaphorically is saying, this is very much like me being the husband and you being my bride and you are committing adultery against me. Because when you choose to go the way of the world, and you choose to operate the way the world operates, that's just like running off of a lover. That's how hurtful it is to me. That's how painful it is to me. That's what you're doing. And that's wrong. And then he says something in chapter 5 that just doesn't make any sense. And there's a translation problem with it. That's why. So when I read it, you probably thought, what is he saying there? And verse 5, uh, or, or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he causes to live in us in envies intensely? The, the key word there is the word envies. And in Greek, it, it usually would be translated envies, but it could also be translated jealousies. And if you look at it as jealousy, it fits the context. You know, that's how they talked in the Old Testament more in these kinds of situations, these kinds of illustrations. And so if you look at it from that perspective, it should probably better read, or do you think Scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us? The spirit is the spirit of life. God longs for each of us in our life to be with him, even as a husband jealously longs for his wife to stay with him. A jealous husband, you don't want a jealous husband. They can be dangerous. Jealous wife can be dangerous too. It's not wrong to be jealous. When you're married and you love somebody, you want to hold on to them. You want to fight for life for them. And that's how God feels about us. He gave us life. He loves us. And He's not going to stop loving us. Even though we turn and run away from Him, He's still coming after us. He's still giving us a chance. And any time we turn to Him, no matter how bad we've been, His arms are open wide. And He says, I'm here. In a supernatural way that a regular human being couldn't do. God's arms are open wide. He loves us. And He won't let go. And that's what we call grace. That's a description of grace. Grace is usually... Uh, defined by saying that uh, it is unmerited favor or divine favor I like this one line that I, I came across that I thought it is a pretty neat way to describe it it says that faith that grace is um, now see I, I'm not seeing where I put it um, yeah isn't that crazy how you do it is uh, yeah yeah there we go Receiving what we don't deserve from the only one who can give it. Receiving what we don't deserve from the only one who can give it. Isn't that interesting? Only God can give this kind of grace. Only God can give the kind of love that is here offered. And it's just amazing that He would offer that to us. But how do we receive it? What do we have to do? We have to humble ourselves. And Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 is quoted here by him. Uh, God opposes the proud. God doesn't want people that are all about themselves. The proud are the people that say, hey, this is all about me. i got to get what I want to get for myself. But the humble says, no, I, I surrender to you. You're the one who does this. It's kind of interesting. If we want to win God's favor, what do we do? We get into a room and God says, okay, who's going to win my favor? And somebody dances for him, and somebody sings for him, and somebody shows how strong they are, and they pick things up. Another person talks about all the credible things that they've done for others. But the person who wins God's favor, so to speak, is the one who just falls on their face and says, I am yours. I give up. Whatever you want. And that's what he's saying here. Nothing more to do. That's what grace is. You just, I give up. And when you go down, that's when you come up. But it's Difficult for us to understand. We say, "Well, how do you explain that? How do I how do I surrender?" And so the next paragraph sort of explains some of the steps that you might go through and helps us understand what God would want us to do. And the first thing is it says to submit yourselves. That's a military term, and submit means to do without question. There are a few military people here that have been in the military, and you submit without question. You do what they say. They're carrying the guns, right? Uh, whatever they say, you do. You're committed. And God says, you need to be able, when, when by grace you surrender yourself, you say, I surrender to your will, whatever it is, I'll do it. That you resist the devil, that it's not, you're not double-minded, it's not one, one, on one day you're, you're going to do it the, way, the Lord's way, and then the next day you're going to do it the world's way. You're not wavering, you're not back and forth, you're, you're all in. Do whatever God says, you draw close to Him, and this requires that you also cast off the past. You weep, you mourn, you wail over the person that you have been. And you go through this incredible pain. And you say, wow, this is joyful stuff, huh? Um, God is some kind of cosmic killjoy. But then you read the last verse, and it all makes sense here. When you get to verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When you go down, that's when he picks you up. He doesn't let you lay there on the ground. He picks you up and he hugs you. And that's when you have real joy. That's when it moves to another level that you can't explain. You can't really have that joy until you go through the pain. But once you go through the pain, you have that joy. And as often as you communicate with God, you don't have to go through that pain as deeply anymore because you're communicating it with him all the time and working out the problems that you have. And then you begin to experience God's love in an incredible way. say, how can I even do these things? God gives you the ability to do what he asks you to do. That's part of the grace. Donald Burdick puts it this way. God in his grace gives to people the help they need to resist the appeal of the world and remain loyal to him. Augustine was even more succinct. He says, God gives what he demands. If God says, I want you to surrender to me, I want you to go through this and get rid of all the sin of the past. I want you to resist the devil. I want you to just completely surrender. He'll give you the ability to do it. All you have to do is just say, I'm here, Lord. I surrender. I'm yours. And step by step, he'll take care of you, and he'll walk you into a close relationship with himself as you persevere. And and it's incredible what happens. It's not always pretty, by the way. We tend to think, well, then I'll conquer the world. Actually, God does more conquering through suffering than he does through success. And it's when we go through those hard times, and I've learned in my own life, it's, it's when I've gone through, through you know, the hard times, when I've gone through the difficult financial times, when I've gone through the loss of life, when I've gone through the loss of friendship, when I've gone through those painful times that God showed up. And I like what uh, Jesus said to Paul. Paul recorded for us in First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, that's the picture here, is it's not about us. It's about Him. And it's about that joy that is there even in the midst of sorrow. It's about Him carrying us through and getting us past the finish line. It's about life being full and meaningful and purposeful. It's about life counting for something. It's not all about us. It's for something far bigger than us and we're able to be part of it, and we're able to experience his presence and his power and interact daily with the God of the universe. That's when life becomes real. And it changes, changes everything the way we do it. So he says then the first thing it changes is it changes now how you interact with people when you're in conflict and when you're making decisions and those kinds of things. And he says what happens is you need to let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. And the next paragraph, starting at verse 11, he summarizes actually the first paragraph we looked at today. Brothers, do not slander slander one another. The Greek word for slander is very broad. You don't want to say anything bad against anybody in public or in private. And that's what they were doing. He says, stop saying bad things about people. Stop doing bad things to people. You don't want to do that anymore. God's the judge. Let him take care of it. You don't have to take care of it. You don't have to fix them. God will fix them. When you try to fix them and try to control everything, you break the law. I didn't hear about that law. Are we voting on that? What law is that? Probably, and I believe it's the law he refers to in chapter 2, verse 8. He introduces them to the royal law and he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You guys remember that? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? I mean, we, we've heard that before. That's where we get the golden rule from. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be considering others as we would want them to consider us. That doesn't, by the way, mean that we let others walk over us all the time or that we just always do what they want, but we care about them enough that we do what is best for them. We do for them what we would want them to do for us in the same situation. And he says, when you don't do that, then you're in trouble. And here, now he's expanded beyond the church. He's talking about your neighbor. And we've learned before that your neighbor is really anybody who comes across your life, right? So those are the people in your life, your neighbors, your family, your friends, the people you work with. How do you treat them? Do you talk behind their back about them? Are you cruel? Are you kind to them? Do you try to fix them? Or do you love them for who they are? And the key here is that in all these situations, God is the judge you are not. He's the one who takes care of it. So we need to do what the judge says, and sometimes the judge tells us to, to judge things. You know, we remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, we said that if you were to say, I am not a judgmental person, what have you just done? You just made a judgment. It is impossible not to judge. But the question is whether it is a just judgment or an unjust judgment. So it is a just judgment when you can look to the Bible and say, well, this is what the Bible says that we should do. You know, obviously, if somebody's beating their kids and their wife, and you know about it, you should report it or do something to try to end that. Um, That's something that's wrong. And that is a just judgment. But if it's an issue of, you know, maybe who you're going to vote for, (laughs) Okay, and those are the kinds of things we get in fights over, you know, or, you know, what color the rug should be in the church, or how you, you know, what, what you're going to do with how you raise your kids, how I raise my kids. I mean, there's so much room for variance in those kinds of things, and those are the things that we judge. We judge people by personality and those kinds of things, and we don't take the stands that we should when we should take stands. So there are times we need to take stands, but even then, we shouldn't be vigilantes, that's the other thing we have. We say, well, okay, this is wrong, so I'm going to, you know, beat these people up. I'm going to say these bad things about these people and so forth. And we see this happening a lot, and that's, then now you, you're, more, you're more, worse than they are. God is the judge. Most of the time you can voice your opinion, and then you pray and let him take care of it. Sometimes you take a stand and say, here I am, Lord, I'm going to take this stand. It may cost your life, and it can come to that. Most of the time, it's a matter of explaining where you're at and and moving on. And and that happens more often in these decisions that we have to make. I learned this about 15 years ago. I started an experiment. I'm going to tell you about my experiment, okay? It was really interesting to me, and I got to remember to keep doing it because every time I do, it's been very helpful. I was for the first time in a church that was a large church, and we were multi-staff, and we had elders and stuff, and we tried to make decisions about things. And I would find that my opinion was often in the minority. And what I discovered over time is that was true of almost everybody in the room. When you have a lot of people, your opinion is often in the minority. And so you try to push through your view, and you're going to make it happen. And you argue, and you go, and you go offline, and you talk to other people, and you try everything you can to make it happen. I realize that just makes me feel bad, and it isn't accomplishing a lot. And so... What I did is I just started trying to pray about those things. So I would say, I would make my opinion very clearly known, make sure that everybody understood where I I stood, and then I would pray and let God be the judge and see what he would do. And I learned three things happen when I would do that. One, I would find out I was wrong. And boy, I was glad I didn't push it through. Two, I'd find out I was right. And it would fail. And they would come back and they would never remember it was me, it seems like. they always... Somebody had another idea. What was that? And then we would try the other idea and it would work. And then I'll tell you what happened most of the time, number three. We never did anything about it. We were just talking about it, but we never got around to doing anything. And so, you know, there are times you have to take stance, but most of the time it's just a matter of letting God be the judge. Now there's one other area here that he gets into. And he kind of changes, he shifts. He says, as he starts the next one, he's going to talk about, uh, we need to do what is right, but we need to do what is right in all of life. We need to do what God wants us to do in everything. We need to surrender all of our life to him. And he begins and he says, now listen, or pay attention, I'm going to change directions a little bit here. He talks about businessmen. And the word he uses is the Greek word for merchants, which means people that were traders of products in those days. And in the ancient world, there were a lot of people that did this. And they were often people that were persecuted or were refugees because they were accustomed to traveling from place to place. And they became a lot of the traveling salesmen of the day. They were predominantly Jewish people. And so the people that we're reading about today, the people that James was writing to, were predominantly Jewish Christians who had been persecuted and spread throughout the Roman Empire. And very likely, they were going from place to place and making their money selling products. And apparently... Some of them had daily planners and were making five-year plans and ten-year plans. And he'll say later, it's not wrong to make plans, but they were all caught up. They had it all figured out. They knew how they were going to run every minute of their day. They had their whole life mapped out. And they were essentially, by doing that, they were saying, I'm God. I'm in control. I'm the one who calls the shots here. And God says, when you do that, that's evil. That's wrong. That's arrogant. Only I know what I'm going to do. You don't control today or tomorrow. He says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's your life like? Really, in the whole span of time, you're just like a mist that just comes and goes. Your life could end any time. read this morning that a man died yesterday swimming in the Reservoir. People die in automobile accidents. People in freak accidents, people have sudden heart attacks. You don't know when your life's going to end. And so for you to have the audacity to tell God and the world, this is how I'm going to do everything, is wrong. You need to surrender your life to God. Make your plans, but when you make your plans, have this attitude expressed in these words, if it is the Lord's will. You don't always have to say that, but it's a good thing to say. If it is the Lord's will, we'll do this. This is what I think God is guiding me to do, but I don't know for sure. And I like what Solomon says later in um, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3, and chapter 19, verse 21. He says, you make your plans, but the Lord directs your steps. So you make your plans, but you hold on to them loosely. And you pray and say, now, what is God going to do? This is, Lord willing, this is the direction we're going in. We'll let God take care of the rest. And he'll, he'll take care of it. There's no need to sweat about it. He takes care of it. And then he summarizes it with what was apparently a very popular saying in the day. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Today we would say, if you know the right thing to do, what? Do it, right? That's what he just said. If you know the right thing to do, do it. He summarizes the whole chapter. Now you know the right thing to do, so do it. And as it relates to this topic, what he's basically saying is don't worry about tomorrow, just do what's right today. Seek first God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and He'll give you what you need. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Seek Him first. Concentrate there, make your plans, but don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Enjoy life. Now, there's some applications for today, and the first one, there's really two. One is surrender. Uh, have you surrendered your life to Jesus yet? That's the beginning point, and, and it starts with us in our heart wanting to give our lives to Him. And we articulate that with our words from our mouth. And some guidelines for that is to you know, admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, and choose to follow Christ and put your faith in Him alone. And if you haven't done that yet, we encourage you to come and talk with us because we'd love to to walk you through that process. But after you've given your life to Christ, does it stop? You've got to keep on surrendering. You keep on surrendering every day, all day long. And so what happens is you interact with God, and you every day should be getting alone with God and confessing and repenting of any sin in your life because if you don't, it builds up, and you get in trouble. Just like, well, Carrie and I, this, this never has happened with us, but, you know, because we're, you know, good Christian people. But if we ever have disputes with one another, and we have bad thoughts, it's probably on her part, she has bad thoughts about me, and she doesn't tell me, then, you know, she's going to get really crabby, right? And then I'm going to have to help her. Now, it, it kind of works both ways, right? You don't, if you don't deal with the problems you have at the moment, what happens? They pop up later and they're worse. And so you have to deal with them. That's what God is saying. If you have issues, God's never wrong in that relationship. You're the one who has the problem. So take those problems to him and work them out. Work them out every day. Work them out throughout the day when he brings them to your attention. And if you're on a regular basis working them out and talking openly and honestly with God and having that conversation, then it's not going to blow up in your life. And then it relates to the same with judging people. When you relate with other people, when you're making decisions and interacting, make sure you don't judge people based on their personality or their political positions or um, the, the way they do things that are different than their personalities. There are times when you have to take a position and say, this is what the Bible says, this is, you know... There's a conflict here, and we're going to only resolve this conflict if we work through some issues here that we have. And sometimes you'll have to do those kinds of things. You do it sensitively, you do it gently, you do it lovingly. But most of the time, it's a matter of just saying, okay, we're working through these issues. At this time, it's just a matter of making decisions. We see things differently. I can't change them. I'm just going to, you know, we agree to disagree, and I'll pray about it and see what God does. And then, finally, are you willing to give God all your life? Are you willing to surrender all your life to the grace of God? And that relates to a lot of different areas in our lives. Because, you know what, I, I bet you almost everybody in this room has played this game where you say in your mind, say, when I graduate from school, when I graduate, I'm, I'm going to graduate from high school now, am I going to go to college? If I am, where am I going to go? Am I going to get married? If I am, who am I going to marry? If we get married, are we going to have kids? If we have kids, how many? Where are we going to live? What's our career going to be? When will I retire? What will I do when I retire? When will I die? Where will I be buried? You know what? Don't go there. You know I mean? To some degree, you may think through some of that, but you cannot control that. And the older I get, the more I regret stressing over some of those things. Because you can't, so much of it's out of your control. You make some general plans, and you trust in the Lord. You live day by day. He works it out. Not wrong to make plans. Not wrong to have targets. But I find like even with our church, we've had some targets, but we've adjusted those as we've gone. You know, they're not like fixed in stone. Because God brings things about that you don't always, you know, expect to have happen. And generally, if you go with Him... You know, in the end, it's always better with him. But generally, even in the short run, you say, oh, I just go this way. It all kind of comes together. But if I stay with my plan, everything falls apart. So you, you learn to be flexible. You work with the God of the universe. I got I to gotta tell you what happens um, here with this story that I started with. You know, It, it is an amazing story, the story of the frontiersman because it ties in to everything we were talking about today. Simon Kenton is the main character. And it fascinates me because he's kind of like the good people that I meet in life. People that are trying to be good, but even though they're trying, it seems like the harder they try, the more they get themselves messed up. That's what my life used to be. I don't know if you can relate to that. So he's like, by the world standards, kind of a good guy, but he keeps getting himself in trouble. And when he's a young man... He has a problem with this other man. He marries this gal and he, he, wanted, he liked this gal and they get in this conflict. And they get in a fight, a physical fight. He feels like he killed the man. He fought, he killed him. And so he runs to the woods. That's how he becomes a frontiersman. And then later he fights Indians and he, and he kills them. He saves Daniel Boone, throws him over one shoulder and carries him out and saves his life on one occasion. But then he's captured by the Indians and they torture him unmercifully and he shows so much stamina and strength and courage that he makes them fearful, and they admire him, and they let him go. And then he goes back, and he ambushes and kills Indians. He has affairs. He has a child out of wedlock. He marries a gal, two gals that are scandalously younger than him. But he's always faithful to his wives, good to his kids when he's around, but he always feels like he has to be out working to do things. Does this of kind of familiar? I mean, he's, he's trying to be the man he should be in this very rugged, barbaric environment, and it just keeps getting himself more and more in trouble. So finally, he decides to open a mill... And this guy embezzles all of his money and runs away with it, and so he chases the guy across the country. He comes back with some money and a permanent limp, and people say, what happened? He said, let's just put it this way. He's not going to be embezzling anybody anymore. But his life is becoming depressing. This is a non-Christian book, just giving the facts. Um, Ellen... Eckert has footnoted every page. It's just extensively footnoted, although written like a novel. And so he's just reading all the facts that he has from all the notes in the, the background. What happened is he went to a Methodist revival meeting with his family. And he heard the preacher talking about Jesus. And he asked if he could meet him out in the woods afterwards. And the preacher, I don't know if I would have met with him out in the woods, after, but, but he did. And he sat down and, and he, just, he just started pouring it all out. He poured out all the stuff in his life, and he said he wanted Jesus. He gave his life to the Lord, and he said, let's keep this between the two of us. And he walked out, and he got so excited, he just couldn't contain it. And he just started hooping and hollering. He brought all of his family and friends around, and he said, i give my life to Jesus. And he was never the same. He took his rifle, and he set it aside. This is a true story. He Maybe the greatest frontiersman in history, and he grabbed a staff. And from that point on, he would carry a staff, and he became a man of peace. A lot of us are in that same kind of situation even after we give our life to the Lord but we can be people of peace if we continue to converse with God and work with Him. We can have victory if we surrender. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that oh, even going back in history we can see that things haven't changed a whole lot. There are problems all throughout life and there are problems today and there have been problems yesterday and there will be problems tomorrow. But you're the same yesterday, today and forever. And you offer grace. Um, you offer to open uh, your arms and pick us up and hug us and take care of us and hold our hands and walk us through all of life's trials to give us joy and to deliver us safely to heaven when this life is ended. Lord, we pray that each person here um, would surrender to that grace today. Amen.